0: Hello there, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes. I'm your host, Joe Walker, and this is the Jolly Swagman podcast. Welcome to episode six of Housing Bubble Week. In introducing this episode, let me start with the big picture before honing it down to the focus of the conversation you're about to hear. So far, a single four-letter word has been conspicuously lacking in this series, it's a four-letter word that in some people can summon dread and that for many of us evokes an image of a millstone around the neck. It's a four-letter word that describes an idea which, as David Graeber reminds us, has been with humanity at least as long as money itself. The word is debt. Debt is a permanent feature, not just of civilization, but indeed of our individual lives. Some debts are with us for life, In fact, the word mortgage originally comes from the Law French or Old French for death pledge, with mort meaning death and gage meaning pledge. Although I, I should add that this didn't refer so much to the fact a mortgage took a lifetime to repay in the US, after all, multi decade mortgages weren't available until after 1933 as to the fact that the pledge would only end or die when either the obligation was fulfilled or the property was taken through foreclosure. Either way, it was as solemn an obligation as any marriage, till death do us part indeed. Debt may be burdensome, but is debt all bad? The flip side of debt is, of course, credit. Credit is an invention that has lubricated the wheels of human progress. As historian Neil Ferguson puts it, in The Ascent of Money... The evolution of credit and debt was as important as any technological innovation in the rise of civilization. If you have the wit, but not the wherewithal, to start something new, credit ensures that the world is not deprived of your ideas. And yet credit is productivity agnostic. Joseph Schumpeter warned us in 1939 that, quote, The credit machine is so designed as to serve the improvement of the productive apparatus, and to punish any other use. However, this turn of phrase must not be interpreted to mean that that design cannot be altered. Of course, it can. The existing machine could be made to work in any one of many different ways. Quote. In other words, there's no natural reason why a credit can't find itself being shoveled into increasingly less productive assets. Now, for most of this series, I placed an emphasis on speculation. That was deliberate. I think speculative behaviour is essential to understanding both bubbles and crashes. As I said in the introduction to my episode with Chris Joy, crashes are stitched into bubbles by the hands of speculators. And yet the role of speculation hasn't, at least in my opinion, been adequately analysed in most of the commentary on the Australian housing bubble, to the extent that debt and credit have so I wanted to raise more attention to it. But where there's a will, there's a way. And if speculation or animal spirits are the will, then easy credit is the way. Credit is as much a feature of housing bubbles as the moon is of nighttime. This is for a very simple reason. Buying a house is the biggest purchasing decision most of us will make in our life. Yet few of us have a spare $1 million lying under the bed to buy one outright. Credit enter the picture. Grasping the role of credit immediately gives you a powerful tool with which to understand the contours of housing bubbles. It stands to reason that if you channel ever-increasing amounts of money into a relatively steady supply of dwellings, you're bound to see price increases like the stupefying ones we've witnessed in Sydney and Melbourne. It's no coincidence that those two conurbations remain in the world's five least affordable cities by price-to-income ratio, and that Australia also has, after Switzerland, the second highest household debt-to-GDP ratio in the world. Now, on top of everything I've just said, let me add a dirty little secret. This is a secret that lies at the heart of this, the penultimate episode of Housing Bubble Week. To sustain such price rises, ever more credit must be extended to ever more borrowers. Run out of borrowers and you risk killing the bubble. As Dean Baker, the first guest in this series, said in 2002 in regards to the run-up in US house prices, such a bubble must inevitably burst when there are no more buyers to be found. This insatiable appetite for credit has an inevitable logic. Eventually, incentivized bankers, who by the way speculate on prices in their own way, have to start getting more creative. They might begin lowering underwriting standards to permit more borrowers to enter the market, people who in normal times would not be considered creditworthy. It's the entry of the least creditworthy borrowers that at once tells you the bubble is alive, and also that it is doomed. Michael Burry of The Big Short fame put it this way in a speech to Vanderbilt University in April 2011. Quote, the point at which the provision of credit was most lax would mark the point of maximal price in the asset. I imagined the top in the housing market would be marked by a mortgage in which home buyers of subprime quality were enticed to buy with teaser rate monthly payments near zero. I was very aware lenders would take this to the nth degree, end quote. Importantly, the effect of the lowest quality borrowers isn't limited to the lowest quality homes. It has ramifications for the entire housing market because the people buying the lower priced homes allow those selling them to trade up. Bill Gross, billionaire American investor and founder of PIMCO, called this plankton theory. The entire housing ecosystem, in Gross's mind, is dependent on the first-time buyers and the leave-it-up investors. As Gross said, to gauge the health of the housing market, first look at the plankton. What all this tells you is that, in a housing bubble, it's really the availability, not the cost, of credit that sits in the driver's seat, on the way up and down. That's why, in my opinion, the Reserve Bank of Australia now has as much power to arrest house prices falls as a ringtail possum has to put out Orion with a flicker of its tail. One person who knows more about the underwriting standards of Australian banks than almost anyone who doesn't work at a bank is John Hempton, our guest. John is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Australian-based hedge fund Bronte Capital. He's a legendary short-seller, whose work shorting Valiant Pharmaceuticals, for example, saw him as one of the protagonists in an episode of Netflix's Dirty Money series. But my specific reason for speaking with John was because in 2016, he toured Western Sydney undercover with friend of the pod and former guest Jonathan Tepper of Variant Perception. Their mission was to investigate mortgage broker techniques, bank underwriting standards, and how easy it was to borrow too much money. John and I discussed the trip, its core hypothesis, and what the two men uncovered. We also discussed the likelihood of an Australian recession in the next two to three years, thereby bringing this series closer to its logical endpoint and to our finale episode tomorrow. So without much further ado, please enjoy my chat with John Hampton. John Hampton, thank you for joining me. Thank you. In 2016, more than three years ago now, you and Jonathan Tapper of Variant Perception toured Sydney uh, investigating underwriting standards in the property market. Now, I don't think you've given the full details publicly before. Uh, I've
1: given a fair bit, but the key bit was that we just decided to go a little further out or even a lot further out than the average Sydney finance guy. Right. So pick stuff on the periphery of Sydney. Um, we went out to Rouse Hill. We went to equivalent places down the south. We went also to the big apartment builds in Parramatta and places like that. And we talked to lending offices. We talked to brokers. We talked to bank offices. We talked to people buying houses at auctions. We just sort of surveyed. The key thing that we did was we talked to three types of mortgage brokers – And the first type of mortgage brokers were ones that were recommended to us by friends and were honest. And the question was, how much money could we borrow? And if you read the bank underwriting standards and translated it, you could borrow according to the underwriting standards 6.8 times your income. Now, you know, if you look at Irish banks at the moment, you're now you're not allowed to borrow more than three and a half times your income. But 6.8 times your income is a number that is theoretically affordable but it's going to hurt and we asked them you know what if i wanted to borrow 6.9 times and they said yeah i can do that right what about seven times i could do that what about seven point it turns out that what about eight times and they say i can't i know somebody who can get things done (laughs) and the actual number was although the official number was 6.8 times your income the unofficial number was 7.2 And the honest brokers would happily lend you 7.2 times their income and they would tell everything truthfully to the banks and the banks would accept that loan. If you wanted to borrow eight times or nine times your income, they would have to send you to somebody else who just knew all the loopholes and was playing fast and loose. And the expression they used, and we kept hearing it again and again and again, is I know a bloke who can get things done. The second way we found blokes that could get things done was we went to visit property developers and we deliberately chose a property we couldn't afford. And we'd asked them to send us to their favourite mortgage broker. And it turns out their favourite mortgage broker was also blokes who could get things done.
0: And when you say you couldn't afford, obviously... Well,
1: you- yeah, we, we, we decided... This is the bit that everybody remembers. We had to pretend what our income was and Jonathan Tepp is a Rhodes scholar and a sort of erudite Englishman who speaks half a dozen languages and I don't sound poor so we had to make it plausible and so what we were were a pair of gay graphic designers and we would describe our income as low and variable And the beautiful thing about variable was variable gave the mortgage brokers all the data that they needed in order to get things done, right? (laughs) Variable was all they needed. They didn't care about our low. But um, in order to make this plausible, because we were buying houses, we had to really look like a couple. So we'd actually walk into mortgage brokers holding hands and things (laughs) like that. And even to this day, because this is a good story, we get journalists ring us up and they say, they just want a fact check this story and the only thing that they want to fact check is did we really hold hands and I promise you we did (laughs) did did you act like a couple in in yeah like, like, like we would look for apartments that were too small right because that was all we could afford and the too small apartment would have a nook that you know you might be able to set a desk up at and because we were graphic designers, we would fight over who was going to get that desk, right? Just in order to make it plausible. But it was it was an exercise in meeting the blokes that did get things done. And I mean, if Jonathan Tepper had been a twenty seven year old woman, we would have told them we were expecting a baby, right? But you know, he was a bloke, so he had to be gay. <laughs> it was. Uh... It just needed to be done, yeah. right? Because otherwise our whole ruse of appearing like a real couple didn't work. Yeah. Now, the third type of mortgage broker we saw were the ones, you know, there's a guy called Nathan Birch. Interviewed him. Who runs a thing called Be Invested. And Nathan tried to get you to buy 30 properties. Uh, or 10 properties. And the way you did this was that you got the first one revalued, you then borrowed against the revalued property in order to get the second and third one, you rinsed and repeated, and eventually you're extended out to the eyeballs, but as property only goes up, it works just fine. And Nathan Birch claimed, and I don't know the validity of the claim, but he claimed to have 180 properties. And my reaction to this was, you've got 180 properties and the bank owns 150 of them right the market's gone up a long way you should be in the black for fuck's sake cash it because if you own 30 properties unlevered you are set up beyond all measure for the rest of your life there is absolutely no reason to own 180 properties leave it it's just sort of financial insanity right but he had a mortgage broker attached to him and the mortgage broker ran a line in Explaining to you how, and in fact, courses explaining to you how to fool the bank into believing that your property was revalued upwards.
0: So you you met this guy, yeah, Nathan Birch's me. mortgage broker yes. in Sydney. Yes. Huh. So this was the third category. That was the
1: third category—the really, 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 you know, aggressive mortgage broker. And what did he say? Well, the most important thing he said—I'm going to say it publicly—was that he hated National Australia Bank. And the reason he hated National Australia Bank was that National Australia Bank strictly would not revalue any property up that was owned for less than a year. But Westpac and Commonwealth would, right? And his definition of a good mortgage wasn't one that was cheap, but it was one that you could expand, right? Because, you know, if you're Nathan Birch and you're selling these property seminars, right, what you've got to do is convince the person to borrow Two billion, two million, three million, five million, twenty million. Right? And so, you know, Nathan Birch's mortgage broker, whose name escapes me now, his definition of a good mortgage wasn't the cheapest mortgage, it was the most expandable mortgage, the one you could borrow most on. And that was not National Australia Bank. And in fact, most of the time when we looked, there was a sort of hierarchy of banks, with National Australia Bank being bad, but the best of a bad lot. It was kind of odd to me that the Royal Commission had the outcome that the only bank CEO and chairman that resigned was National Australia Bank. In fact, you know, the Royal Commissioner was flat wrong, right? By far the best of a bad lot, and they're all bad, was National Australia Bank. The only one that shouldn't have resigned was the National Australia Bank one. (laughs) Now, I admit I'm friends with the National Australia Bank chairman of the time. But, you know, I went went and took all the data to him And National Australia Bank actively tried to improve where we thought they were faulty, right? And we know for a fact that they did in certain instances, right? And by contrast, you know, nobody from Westpac rang us, right? But it was pretty clear that bad practice was ubiquitous. And the further you went from Sydney, from the centre of Sydney, the worse the practice got. (laughs) Um, in particular, it got bad if you went north and west, right? So that, you know, Norwest Business Park and the suburbs around Norwest, like Kellyville and then further out to Rouse Hill, they were, they were surreal, right? Whereas if you went south and west, they were just wacky. But north and west, right, the whole culture was surreal. I argue that the centre of the Sydney property bubble is Rouse Hill, which is kind of absurd because you can go to Rouse Hill and there's a lovely shopping centre, which is upper middle class. I'd be perfectly happy shopping there with my wife. But in fact, it's just grass to the Blue Mountains. And we went and visited just a, a bank branch, not National Australia Bank, but a big bank branch in um, Rouse Hill. And we're talking to the lending officer, you know, saying we, you know, we weren't actually giving her numbers at this point. We're just trying to find out attitude and she told us that we should and this is a bank lending officer who's not paid commission a broker who's paid commission right you know that's a different thing she probably has a lending target so she's pretty keen to lend to you but she's not paid commission she told us that we should draw our credit card to the maximum to get the biggest deposit we can so we could buy a house now rather than save for a deposit And the reason she said this is that the house price goes up faster than you can save. And then she said, it'll go exponential. She didn't know what exponential meant. But this was a 55-year-old sort of older lady who'd probably been, you know, a bank officer for 15 years and had somehow rather moved to outer Western Sydney. And there wasn't a skerrick of financial sensibility about her. Right? And, you know, the idea that a bank officer who's not paid commission tells you to draw a credit card. Oh, and she told you, look, you know, you should get credit cards against other banks so that it doesn't show on our system. It's pretty astonishing. We were, you know, but it was bad everywhere. But the further north and west we went, in mm. fact, you know, one of the jokes, for instance, is that the median house price in Mount Druitt, it was over a million dollars, and the median household income in the tax stats was about 55,000. And, you know, the median household income in Rose Bay is not huge, but I don't really believe the tax stats at that point. There's a lot of assets there. But when somebody's a PAYE ta- tax earner, the tax stats are a fairly accurate, which are done by suburb, are a fair, fairly accurate appraisal of the income of that house. And we sort of did mismatches between, we, we also targeted suburbs with the largest mismatch between taxable income and house price, where we thought there were over 90% PAYE earners. And at, you know Mount Druitt and Rooty Hill were two adjacent suburbs, neither of which is salubrious. Mount Druitt used to be all government housing and Rooty Hill was sort of fibro housing and it was private and once upon a time Rooty Hill was a premium to Mount Druitt because you know Mount Druitt's government housing and now Mount Druitt was a premium to Rooty Hill because it's government housing that was built to last. So you can put tenants in it they won't destroy it. And the question was who was buying it? And the answer was people who had eight suburbs back towards the city were buying it because they couldn't afford a house in where they wanted to live, so they were just leveraging up um, rental properties in the hope that they would get enough money to buy the house that they actually wanted. It was kind of bizarre. I and mean, we actually walked through suburbs. Jonathan Tepper's parents um, were missionaries in Spain who ran drug rehab clinics... And JT has a weird skill, which is that he can walk down a street and say, that woman's just shot up. And he just knows a junkie by looking at them, just looks at their eyes and he knows they're a junkie. We followed her back and out of a little laneway, and yeah, there's syringes on the ground. She had just shot up. And you walk down the street and there's, you know, there's a street with about seven or eight pawn shops in it in Blacktown. And the houses just around the corner from the junkies and the pawn shops were 900,000. It's astonishingly silly, right? I mean, I actually have no particular problem with a waterfront house at 20 million, right? The waterfront house at 20 million is a trophy owned by rich people, and the value of that house depends entirely on how many rich people there are. I'm amazed that income distribution is where it is, but if income distribution keeps getting wider, trophy waterfront homes just go up, right? Um, what astonishes me... Nobody grows up desiring to live in Rooty Hill. You live in Rooty Hill because you can afford it, and that's what happens. Right? You know, it's it's not a it's not an af- aspirational place. In non aspirational places, houses were trading at 17 or 18 times income. Right? It's just and the lending officers were telling you to draw your credit card to the max so that you could buy them. All we went and did was prove that the lending standards were really really low now if only five percent of the loan book is lent to those standards there's not really an economic problem right some people are just going to lose a lot of money but there's no disaster that's going to befall the society but if 40 percent of the loan book is led to those standards then you look more like ireland at the end all the banks get wiped out there's reconstruction and We couldn't answer that question, right? We could prove that beyond reasonable doubt that the lending standards were completely atrocious everywhere except National Australia Bank, and they were just bad at National Australia Bank, right? Um, But we couldn't say whether 5% of the loans were at that standard or 50% of the loans were at that standard. And if 5% of the loans are at that standard, this bubble will... End with a soft landing of some description, and a fifty percenter of that standard. This bubble's going to end with a very, very, very hard landing,
0: and I don't know the answer. Previously, you've said if even twenty five per cent are bad, it if twenty five per cent are bad, the banks
1: will survive, but their yeah. dividends will go. There'll be a recession. There'll yeah. be right, but it'll be a garden variety recession. Yeah, right? meaning. We have a few years of subnormal income. Bank shareholders discover that, you know, these things don't work very well sometimes, right? But it's a garden variety recession. Mm. Unemployment peaks out at sevens or eights, or, right? But n- not at 14. Mm. If 50% are bad, then it's not a garden variety recession. It looks more like Ireland. And unemployment peaks out with a two in front of it, mm. you know, and it may not last very long, right? But that's not garden variety. That's epochal. Yeah. I suspect that it will be a garden variety recession with a bunch of very sore losers.
0: And why do you suspect that? Just because almost
1: every other housing bust, except the US and Ireland, has looked like that. It's, you know, 9 10%. 25% unemployment rates in Australia would be bizarre. The Australian dollar can move down a long way. Yeah. Right? The sort of end game is that you get a recession, Australian dollar is weak, the Australian dollar goes to 50 cents or right? something like that. A 50 cent dollar and a $80 iron, iron ore price is 160 Australian dollar iron ore price, which is where it was at the height of the mining boom. you know a weak australian dollar restarts things then you get a bit of wage inflation right the loans are not as bad as you look right there's a garden variety recession you don't want to own banks and you don't actually want to own retailers right in fact you don't want to own anything that suffers from a weak australian dollar but the miners could be fine it'd be a weird macroeconomic outcome but you know this notion that the adjustment mechanism is the a dollar and if the a dollar goes down far enough wages go up mm. right the economy booms in another sector and that solves a lot of ills
0: what do you think the probability of a garden variety recession is at this point 70 right in the next two years two three years yeah yeah right um just going back to this tour of Western Sydney, what was the most you were you were offered in terms of a mortgage compared to your income? We
1: proved that you could borrow ten times your income. Now it's kind of ten times is a magic number. And the reason is that at ten times your income you're left with three hundred dollars a week. And it actually doesn't matter what your income is, because tax rates are progressive. So if you borrow ten times hundred thousand, you're actually left with slightly less than if you borrowed ten times fifty thousand. Now, that worked when interest rates were at four. The interest rates are a bit lower now, but nonetheless, right? The question was, could you borrow 10? And I can't conceive of how you managed to get your expenses living in Sydney below $300 a week. Yeah. Right? It's just, it's not, as soon as you've got a kid, that's inconceivable, Mm. right? But you could borrow yourself to $300 a week. Now as a couple, that's a bit better because you could borrow yourself to two times 300. And we were a gay couple, so children might not be accepted, right? But if you're an ordinary couple buying a house, the next thing that happens is babies, right? And your incomes go down and your expenses go up and 10 times your income is diabolical. Mm. If you borrowed 11 times your income after minimum repayments, you were left with zero slightly negative and it also didn't matter what your income is because it's progressive so we proved that you could borrow 10x your income despite the fact that the bank standard was 6.8 or 7.2 depending on who you asked
0: who offered you the 10x
1: the blokes who could get things done
0: yeah all w- of them which category any category all of them
1: right <laughs> right there were tricks for doing it there, there's
0: mechanisms for
1: faking but you know they would tell you where the weaknesses in the bank's Monitoring.
0: What were some of the classic tricks?
1: The Most extreme one was just fake tax returns. Literally, software to develop them.
0: Someone showed that to you. Yeah. <laughs> what <up>? suburb? <laughs>
1: not going to say. Right. It gives too much game away. Okay. Right. But uh, I'm not even sure they showed me the output of some tax returns. Right. But they look pretty real.
0: Hmm.
1: Right. Um. And tax returns are secret. So who who knows? Hmm. Right? But it didn't seem, you know, there was a culture of mortgage brokers lying and a culture of banks accepting. And that culture, when we wrote it up, sounded bizarre. And po- post the Royal Commission, it sounds absolutely expected. Right, The Royal Commission demonstrated that banks had a culture of not checking right because they had volume targets and things like that. So, but again, I don't know whether it's 5% of the book, in which case it's a slightly bloody nose for the banks, or whether it's 50% of the book.
0: I really don't know. Given how opaque the bank's books are, how would you even approach trying to figure out that?
1: You can't tell that without the bank's internal data.
0: Okay. There's no way.
1: And there's there's just no way. Yeah. Right. It's... The only way that you can really tell is to measure the bank's culture, right? In the sense that, you know, if it's culturally really bad, it's likely to be higher.
0: Incentives trump ethics. Right, yeah, Yeah. incentives
1: trump ethics. And in the bank culture thing, there was a definite hierarchy with the two bad banks being Commonwealth and Westpac and the good bank being National Australia and ANZ being somewhere in the middle. Okay, and... That you know, if we get a big washout, that's the order that the washout will happen into. Yeah. But I genuinely don't know how much of the book is like that. I wish I did. You know, all we proved was that there was wide, It was widespread. It was dead easy to find people that would help you fake your income. It was dead easy to get find mortgage brokers who will help you navigate the underwriting standards and the banks had incentives to turn blind eye. <laughs> we proved all that. The royal commission proved it again.
0: And now do you know if anything was anything similar was happening in Melbourne?
1: We didn't do Melbourne. Yeah. We didn't do Melbourne.
0: Have you heard anything?
1: I've heard stuff, but I don't know whether it's right. You never not. checked. Right. I never I don't want to tell you I know when I didn't check. Yeah. Right. And also it's fair to say that the cultures were uneven even throughout Sydney. Mm-hmm. Right. It when I said it gets worse as you go north and west, I really meant it. Right. It wasn't even a little bit worse, it got a lot worse as you went north and west. The fantasy was deeper. Now the rail line that's going out north and west was part of the fantasy. It was like all these suburbs that are miles out will soon be inner suburbs without realising that it's still an hour on the train,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? I mean, it's a fantasy. But people construct fantasies around whatever the asset bubble is.
0: Yep, There are always post-hoc rationalisations. So. Yeah.
1: I wish I I knew how to quantify it.
0: Yeah. I certainly
1: knew which side of the trade I wanted to be on at the end, right? You know, bad culture and the cultures were really bad. Yeah. It gets bad outcomes, Yeah, But it's not linear. You know, things went up for a year and a half after we wrote the report and nobody believed us.
0: Mm. I thought Jonathan was treated quite unfairly by the media. There's a real sense of conformity and tribalism when it comes to a national bubble. And he was treated as, you know, the foreigner, the hedge fund shill.
1: Yeah. Incredibly uh, unfair. We expected it. Yeah. Right? We expected it. Um, I was... Very keen to say it was Jonathan Tepper's report. And Mm. the reason is I just didn't want to go through that shit. (laughs) Right. And to some degree, yeah, it was Jonathan Tepper's report. You know, I was his guide and driver through Western Sydney. And boyfriend. And boyfriend. Yeah. (laughs) He's a good looking guy too. You know, any single ladies out there, you know, he really is a good looking guy. I'm married. So, you know, (laughs) keep trying to pair him up with people. (laughs) I thought he had the Fintwit girlfriend. Oh, he did for a while. Oh, okay. Oh, Problem bro- was there was a long distance relationship. Oh, I wouldn't okay. mind him having a long distance
0: relationship in Australia because then he'd visit me more often. <laughs> now, what's interesting about this uh, partnership or union is that you're, you know, <laughs> <Thank> you're, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're, <laughs> marriage. <laughs> marriage. Sorry, yes. I'm trying to be politically correct. <laughs> uh, you're a died-in-the-wall bottom-up micro guy. Jonathan's a died-in-the-wall top-down macro guy. Yeah,
1: and the weird thing about Jonathan and myself is we don't agree very much because we're so dyed in the wool about how micro and macro we are. Mm. When we agree, we're almost always right. right? And it's happened a couple of times. It happened on various shale oil stocks and I was finding 30 frauds and he was finding top-down capital misallocation. And guess what? It turns out that where there's lots of money sloshing around, you get fraudsters, right? I find the fraudsters. He finds the lots of money sloshing around,
0: mm.
1: right? It's still approaching the same. You know, we're getting to the same point, just a different way. And when we do, the money's not sloshing around sensibly. It's sloshing around pointlessly because it's been given to fraudsters as well. So people are not doing their due diligence.
0: Yeah,
1: right. That when we when we agree, it tends to work beautifully. I'd, I'd like to know all the places we agree. <laughs> Right. Most of the time I just listen to him and think, I don't have a fucking clue what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he probably look listens to me and says the same thing. <laughs> and that's fine too. Yeah. You know, different ways of skinning a cat.
0: Yeah. So a lot of people now are saying that we're headed for a soft landing, or at least wishing that we are. Um, this argument... Is- I, think,
1: I think it's going to be a medium landing. I don't right. think it's going to be Spain. Yeah. Right? I don't think unemployment... I'd be very surprised if unemployment didn't have a seven in front of it at the mm-hmm. worst. And I'd also be very surprised if unemployment were double digit at the worst.
0: But what are your reasons for thinking that? Because on, on certain relevant metrics like, you know, household debt to GDP... The um, main reason is the, we currency, look pretty bad. the currency is so freaking flexible. And the shock absorber. Right? It's just such
1: a good shock absorber. Yeah. I'm, uh, before he was 2IC of the central bank, mm. I used to be regular friends with, you know, have a irregular chat with um, Guy DeBell. Mm-hmm. And I don't have it anymore because he's in a position of power as much as anything else. But, you know, one of my questions to him was, you know, if my extreme version of what could happen happens, will you defend a 60 cent Australian dollar? And he says, no will you defend a 50 cent Australian dollar? And he says, no. Will you defend a 40 cent Australian dollar? And at a 40 cent Australian dollar, large parts of Australia are just flying, right? I mean, Australia suddenly becomes the cheapest place in the world to have a nice beach holiday,
0: hmm.
1: right? So all those Queensland resorts are full of British backpackers and English tourists and Japanese tourists. And the tourist industry is flying. Flying at a 40 cent dollar, right? I mean, it's just, you know, there's a boom all the way up the coast of Queensland, right? At a 40 cent Australian dollar, Australian iron ore is back to 190 Australian, right? You know, it's right back at the top of the bull market. So the whole mining boom is, right? So it's pretty clear that a 40 cent Australian dollar, mm. you know, solves all ills, mm. right? Now, it doesn't solve the ill of western sydney right northwestern sydney is still going to, it doesn't benefit from a mining boom and it doesn't benefit from a tourism boom right the only thing the business of northwestern sydney is building houses for people who live in northwestern sydney the slump there is ugly but there's a safety valve mm. and the safety valve is that there's big streams of income coming elsewhere in the australian economy yeah so when i said would you defend a 40 cent australian dollar? he says "None." Right. At this point, I realised the Australian dollar is enough enough of a you know buffer. Then I asked him, because I was being cheeky, would you defend a 25 cent Australian dollar? And he looked back and said, I wish you wouldn't ask me. <laughs> right. So somewhere in there, the central bank gets worried mm-hmm. between 40 cents and 25 cents. Right. But the answer is the Australian dollar can fall far enough that large sections of the Australian economy just fly.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Now, if you have a house in northwestern Sydney, that doesn't save you from being a long way underwater in the mortgage, but it does mean you can go work in the mines or your kid can go work in the mines and get a bit of income.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Right. And that income will look large relative to your past income. In other words, there are some safety outlets. Yeah. the pain will be selectively not generally applied at that point. Gotcha. Right, whereas double-digit unemployment suggests that the pain is going to be generally applied. I don't think that's going to happen.
0: So, in other words, in in terms of the macroeconomic implications of their housing bubbles, which were severe, the key difference for Ireland and Spain was that they were yoked to the euro. Euro Fixed currency. Whereas we have the floating dollar. Yeah. Yep. Do you know if Jonathan agrees with you on that analysis? Because I, know, I, I know some so. people. I know some
1: people disagree with you on that. I think so, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the sort of two extremes, America has a housing bubble and everybody loses their job, and there's big. Norway has a housing bubble, and the kroner just drops two thirds. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And the Kroner is like Was this uh, the eighties, nineties bubble? When they were the the ninety two yeah. Kroner was pegged. Yeah. And the banks all started failing. And then they depegged the Kroner and within six weeks the problem had gone away. Yeah. But the Kroner dropped. Yeah. The Kroner I think of sort of like the Australian. And they had dollar. a garden
0: variety recession.
1: Uh, it, was a, it was a bit more than garden variety <laughs> while it was pegged. There's a yeah. lovely book on the Norges Bank website. About how they dealt with the Norwegian banking crisis, and the 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 um, it was written from a bureaucrat's perspective mm. as a sort of manual on how you deal with banking crises.
0: Huh, that's great.
1: And I print printed it out and gave it to Ken Henry in 2005. Yeah, and the reason I said was, you know, we're about to have a banking crisis. Please break glass. You yeah. don't have to read it now, but break glass in time of
0: emergency. Yeah.
1: And he broke the glass and read it one night.
0: Oh, was this the go hard, go early, go households? Uh,
1: there's a little, little, bit, of a little bit of that. A little bit of that, okay. You could see a little bit of that right. book, in, book in the response.
0: That's interesting. So a lot of people actually hold up the Swedish response as the model. Yeah. The, and the Sweden
1: cro- and Norway were yeah, pretty similar responses, actually. Were they? The, uh, right. Yeah, the key thing was the, flood, the the depegging of the currencies. Yeah. Right, Um, the depegging of the currencies turned what was a horrific crisis into a small one. Yeah, right. And but you know, it's it's if you think the Australian dollar floats, you know, think of one of these countries with four million or six million population, Mm. completely open economy. Right, they float like crazy. The way to think of the krona is roughly the Australian dollar on steroids. You know, Norway exports oil. The technology for drilling oil in deep water, shipping, and shipping services. Mm. All those things are tied China. Oil, right? They're all basically commodities tied China. And so the Norwegian kroner sort of tracks the same. It's West Australia by the, on, on steroids by the Baltic. That's the way to think of that economy. Mm-hmm. And the kroner does all the adjustment, all of it. But, you know, they're in a very privileged position. They have no foreign debt. They've got this huge sovereign wealth fund. Every time the krona goes down, they're richer, mm. right? You know, it's, it's, like a, it's like you wish Australia were managed. <laughs> it wasn't. You know, we left a mining boom with... They, they, le- they left an oil boom with a sovereign wealth fund owning 3% of global equity markets. Yeah. We left a mining boom with a, a bit of a hangover and a good party. It's called the hair of the dog strategy, John. Right. Well, maybe. (laughs) Maybe it wasn't exactly... It wasn't exactly Australia's finest mode in asset liability management.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Just finally, what do you think the likely extent of house price falls for Sydney and Melbourne will be?
1: Depends where you live. If you live in northwest Sydney, I would think over 50. Right? Um, Rouse Hill is like the centre of the bubble. Mm -hmm. If you live... Within a hundred metres of a beach in a desirable location, the answer is: tell me what wealth distribution will look like. Oh, nothing to do with Australia in particular, right? the The reason why upmarket housing has been so strong is the same reason why you know is the same thing that's driving wealth distribution, or wealth distribution drives it. If you think that the small elite are going to be richer and richer and richer relative to the rest of society. Then the end game for point piper property is it goes up. If you think the wealth distribution goes back to 1973 levels, right, which I don't think, but if you did think that, then wealth distribution goes then point piper property goes down. Mm -hmm. But I don't think the bubble per se is in those, you know what people think of as expensive property i actually think it's in mid-market and lower market property if you're in outer if you're in non-aspirational suburbs of melbourne i'd think 40 percent too right um if you are in country towns that are shrinking i mean the the idea that wollongong's house prices relative to income if you Somebody told me the other day, and I believe them, that if you line up all the cities in the world by house price relative to income, the only ones that are less than a population of 200,000 happen to be in Australia.
0: Mm, Tamworth's in there. Right. It's just bizarre. Tweed Heads, Coffs Harbour. Now,
1: partly they are, because they're desirable places, to live on the coast.
0: Yeah, not Tamworth.
1: Not Tamworth. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you get the idea. Yeah. Um, some of the, you know... Some of the less desirable ones, outer suburban Newcastle, could drop eighty-five, right? Because this doesn't re- have a reason to exist. Yeah. Right. Um, I in, in America, some houses dropped a hundred. Right. There are. You go to the American real estate sites and you look at you know houses in outer Cleveland. Right. They literally went to one dollar. Right. Yeah. All you needed to do was pay the back taxes and the house was yours.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. The house price in Detroit went to a dollar. Right, One dollar. You could buy the whole street for
0: $30. Right. That's
1: Well, was it? <laughs> <laughs> it turned out actually to work out all right in most of those cities. Yeah. Right. But, you know, there's no conceivable reason why some of these less desirable places to live don't go to a dollar
0: mm-hmm. and do you have any sense of average national price falls then no no too hard to say too or? hard to say and, yeah.
1: you know the the averages are I mean I understand why a waterfront house in Point Piper is 40 million right it's 40 million because there are a bunch of billionaires who have nothing better to do with their money and it's you know if you've made a billion dollars what's dropping 40 on a house. Mm. If you go, well, pick Bronte, my suburb, right, and you go to a mid-market house in Bronte, I no longer understand the price. The person in a mid-market house in Bronte is a partner of a law firm or something. A partner of a law firm earns four hundred thousand dollars for 10 years or something or five hundred thousand dollars for 10 years which is only two fifty thousand post post-tax and you can't be a partner for more than 10 years right because you get squeezed out and it turns out that the houses that the partners live in are more valuable than the cumulative lifetime income of the partner or at least the post-tax cumulative lifetime income of the partner which I guess is okay if their heirs and descendants, you know, also pay part of the bill, right? But, you know, it's like the land of eternal mortgages in Japan <laughs> in 1999. So that doesn't quite make sense to me. But it's not as stupid as a house in outer northwestern Sydney mm. for a, where it's grass to the Blue Mountains. Mm. So there's no constraint here, right, where it's $1.4 million. Yep. That makes... Much less sense to me, especially as there aren't that many people earning what a partner of a law firm lives yeah. and living in Rouse Hill. And yeah. I don't mean to, you know, pick on Rouse Hill. It's just the most extreme place we found, and that was only
0: because it was the furthest northwest. It mm. just happens that northwest was bad. Uh, what, what about inner west? Like, what sort of price falls would you be looking at there? I don't have a not sure. Don't yeah. have an opinion. Yeah,
1: I mean, certainly, I look at the house prices and the incomes of people I know, and it don't
0: match. Yeah.
1: Right. But again, I don't know whether that's the norm, right? I just don't have an opinion. Yeah. My guess is down probably a fair bit. But to be fair, inner West was worse than inner East rationally. But it bears no resemblance to outer Sydney. Mm. Outer Sydney, you know, the further we went away from the CBD, the more insane the bank branch offices or the brokers were,
0: Hmm.
1: right? It really was inversion. I mean, I expected when I looked at this, the bubble to be in the inner part, you know, where houses were expensive. I completely changed my mind. The bubble's in the outer part. It affects
0: ordinary people. Reminds me a lot of uh, Galbraith tells the story of the 1920s Florida land boom. It was actually more of a US housing bubble than a Florida land boom, even though that's how he retails it. Um, Chicago went crazy. A few other cities went crazy. But in Florida, they were selling, quote unquote, beachfront properties, which were miles from any water. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and the bubble sort of emanates outwards and becomes less sensible the further it moves. Yeah, that
1: was, that's exactly it. I yeah. mean, Sydney is one of the most attractive cities to live in the world, period. Mm. It is just delicious, right? It's got really good restaurants, it's got a really good climate, it's got, it's got really good beaches, and almost none of those apply if you go an hour and a half, an hour and 20 minutes in traffic yep. west. The only thing that applies is the Sydney price, <laughs> right? But it's not desirable in any sense, no. right? Uh, it, it, I can understand the desirable, st- the quality stuff being expensive, I can't necessarily square its price. I mean, a waterfront home in Point Piper is worth what a waterfront home in Point Piper is worth, which is what a rich guy will pay for it. Yeah. Even a house in Bronte is pretty desirable, right? It's not right, but it's still, you know, a partner of a law firm, aspirational. Yeah. A house, the houses in Western Sydney made no sense, no matter how we cut it. And you could see that in the behaviour of the mortgage brokers, who were more crazy, no matter how you cut it. Mm. You know, I can't imagine an eastern suburbs bank branch officer telling you to draw your credit card to the maximum so you could have a deposit. Mm. Right? It just doesn't work. Yeah, but it sure as hell works in
0: Rouse Hill. <laughs> final, final, final question before we were recording. You told me an interesting story about the behaviour of a residential mortgage-backed security in the U.S. subprime mortgage crisis. Oh. Okay. Can you tell this one?
1: Yeah, okay. This is looking at the very last securitization Lehman did of HELOCs, right? Home equity line of credit. It was about 1100 loans and 80%, so 870 or 880 of them failed. Now, if I told you to pick 1000 borrowers who were going to default, right? You know, who you thought were going to default, and I was going to pay you for picking the worst borrowers you could find. But you know, they're legitimate looking borrowers, but I'm gonna pay I don't think you could pick eight hundred in a thousand that defaulted when only like three percent of the country or four percent of the country defaulted. Right? It cannot be random. Now it turns out that what happened is that there's a class of borrowers who can't pay. And they've worked out that they don't need to pay, they just need to refinance it every every six months and they take a bit of cash out and that pays the coupon while they refinance it and then they refinance it again and they refinance it again and the slogan is a rolling loan gathers no loss (laughs) and these loans rolled from securitization to securitization to securitization and then they sat in the last securitization and then the mortgage market stopped and they couldn't be rolled again so every loan that had been bad for years and years and years and had been rolling and gathering no loss stopped in one place. And so you had 80, 800 a 1,000 loans go bad, right? It wasn't bad luck. It was systematic mm-hmm. refinancing of bad mortgages. Now, to be honest, I haven't seen that in Australia. Right. Right. You know, there are some rolling loans here, and we were told by some of these mortgage brokers how to expand your credit and then you, Right. There's clearly some of it going on. And there's a whole lot of HELOCs or line of credit loans, right? But I don't know a systematic culture of rolling them.
0: Mm-hmm. So bad, but not Armageddon. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Could, if we pegged our currency, it would be Armageddon. Yeah. But we're not stupid enough to peg our currency. <laughs> and Guy DeBell won't defend a 40 cent Australian dollar.
0: <laughs> Cheers to Guy. Thank you. And I'm glad he's our central banker.
1: <laughs> Incidentally, all told to me before he was in a position of power. So,
0: Just to clarify that. Just to
1: clarify that. Because yeah. I really don't want to put him in the shit with that. Yeah. Well. But, you know, that's clearly how they think.
0: Yeah. And they're right. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Don. Cheers. I'm forever glory. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Before you go, I have a quick favor to ask. If you liked this episode, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. I know everyone asks, but it really makes a difference. I make these podcasts for free. They are bloody time consuming, but they're important and I couldn't do it without you. Finally, for show notes and links to everything discussed in that conversation, you can find them on my website, josephnolwalker.com. That's my full name, J-O-S-E-P-H-N-O-E-L-W-A-L-K-E-R.com. You can also get in touch with me there or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Joseph N. walker. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon. Ciao.